Earlier this week, I went down the street for lunch at Five Guys, uh, which is not really noteworthy because I try to get there once a week. Um, but what was a little different this time is that uh, I'm currently doing No Sugar January because I did No Self-Control December. And uh, so um, I walked up to the counter and I said, uh, I like a burger and a lettuce wrap, a sentence I thought I would never say in my life. But um, the lady asked me an interesting question. She said, allergy or preference? I don't know why they're tracking that, but they are. And I realized later, and I said preference, but I realized later what she really was asking me is allergy or are you dieting? Because who prefers a burger without the bun? But so I, I went without the bun and, and uh, it was good, it was great. Actually, I don't think I missed the bun, but what I missed was the fries, right? especially five guys. I miss the fries. And uh, there's, certain, like, there's certain food combinations that almost feel sinful to pull them apart, right? Burgers and fries. It's like they belong together. Spaghetti and meatballs, cake and ice cream, rice and beans, bacon and anything, right? So whatever those combinations are. Tonight we're having dinner at my house. We're doing dinner party with the pastors. We do this every month for new people to come to our house and have dinner with us. And we're doing pizza and Wings, right, you gotta have them together. And for me, it's gotta be wings and blue cheese. I need the blue cheese. I know some people like ranch with their wings, but those people need Jesus. So, um, <laughs> wings and blue cheese. There, there's, there's certain things that just like shouldn't be separated. And as we're continuing our series through James, this morning we come to a text where James is teaching us these two things should never be separated from each other. And in this passage, James talks about faith and he talks about works, faith and works. And he asks two rhetorical questions right at the beginning of this passage in verse 14. He says, what good is it, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What benefit is it? What good is it? What does it help you if you have faith but you don't have works? Can that faith actually save you? And so we're going to look through this passage this morning, and we're going to see that Paul talks about faith really three different ways. And, and the first way that he talks about faith is he talks about a faith that costs you nothing. There's a faith that costs you nothing. And he, he talks about this type of faith by giving us two hypothetical situations. The first one, somebody says they, they want to do something, but they don't. And the other one, someone says they believe something, but it doesn't change their lives. So let's look at this together uh, in verse 15, um, he's describing this, 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 this faith that cares but does nothing. He says, if a, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and, and, and actually it could even just kind of be translated, they don't have clothes, they're, they're naked, and is lacking in daily food, hungry and without clothes, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. James paints this picture of somebody who sees somebody in need and says, hey, I hope you, all your needs get taken care of, but then does nothing to actually address their need. Now, there's actually a danger in the illustration that James uses because it's such an extreme illustration. Because when, when I'm reading it, most of you are probably thinking, not me, I would never do this. If I saw somebody without clothes out in the cold in Syracuse, I would figure out a way to I'd give him my jacket. I would do something. I wouldn't just say, hey, I hope you feel warm and then walk away. That's ridiculous. And what James is doing here is he's actually using a very extreme hypothetical situation to drive home a point. 
You know, when I was a kid, if I did something wrong and my parents said, David, why did you do that? Sometimes I would say, well, everybody else was doing it. My friends were doing it. And then most parents, at least back then, would say something like this. So if your, parent, if your friends told you to jump off a cliff, you would jump off a cliff? You ever, your parents ever say that to you? And every kid would be like, Mom, that's ridiculous. Of course, I, of course I wouldn't do that. What's happening? The parents are using a very extreme example to make a point. And that's what James is doing here. And the danger here is that you'll, you'll read this and you'll go, I would never do that. And you'll think that this isn't an issue for you. But this is way more subtle than seeing somebody without clothes and not giving them clothes. This is any sort of gap in our faith between what we say we care about and how we actually live, right? I may say I care about my health, but if I go to Five Guys every day and live that way and don't work out, there's a gap, right? There's a gap between what I say and how I live. If I say I love my wife, but I'm not loyal to her, there's a gap. If I say I want to be a good dad, but I'm not present with my children, there's a gap. And James is saying, if there's a gap in your faith, it doesn't have the power to save you. He's describing this gap. What he's saying is that real faith is always lived out. It's never just wished about. There's a lot of wishing out there. I wish I would do this. I wish I could do that. James is saying real faith moves beyond wishful thinking to living it out. It's concrete action. Your faith will always manifest itself in concrete action. Which, by the way, this is why right now we're giving our church the opportunity to give warmth to people in New York City. Uh, You heard about this last week. I'll mention it again this morning. Today and next Sunday, you have the opportunity to bring hats, scarves, gloves, um, socks, to the church, there's a bin out there where you can drop, drop it in. And what we do is we've partnered with a ministry in New York City that will, on Valentine's Day, will take those things to people who live on the streets and distribute those things as a gift. And that's a concrete action, a small thing that we can do to try to live out our faith and make a difference. I want to encourage all of you next Sunday, come back and bring some socks or something to put in that, uh, that container out there. So his first example is someone who says, be warm and be filled, but does nothing. In his second example, verse 18 to 20, um, what James does here is he creates a fictional opponent. And he, let's just read it, verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You catching the tone? He's not passive, is he? He's pretty aggressive. He's trying to make a point here. And what he's saying here is that you can say you believe certain things about God. You can even have lots of theological knowledge. You can know the Bible backward, forwards and back. You can even be very religious and very faithful in church attendance. You can do all of those things. You can say a lot but ultimately, just believing, he's saying, you believe, that you believe in God, big deal. The demons believe in God. What do you actually do with your life? How do you live this faith out? A lot of religious talk and theological understanding is useless apart from actual action. So this brings us back to his opening question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? A lot of people feel like James who wrote this book, James was the half-brother of Jesus. A lot of people believe that James and Paul, Paul is an apostle in the early church, big name, wrote much of the New Testament. A lot of people think James and Paul disagree with each other, that they're sort of at odds 
with each other. And here's why. Let me explain why. And Paul wrote a letter to a church in Ephesus. And uh, keep in mind what James just said. Faith without works can't be saved. Let's look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It seems to contradict. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. You didn't work it. You didn't earn it. You couldn't do enough good things. It is the gift of God. And specifically, he says, it's not as a result of works, so no one can boast. So we have what appears to be a contradiction here, right? Paul says you cannot be saved by your works. James says you can't be saved without works. What do we make of this? We need to understand that Paul and James are actually talking about faith slightly different ways to very different audiences. Paul, listen carefully, Paul is talking about the initial faith that an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't have a relationship with God, Paul is talking about the initial faith that an unbeliever exercises in response to God's searching and rescuing grace. And it leads to a theological term, justification, which simply means that we've been declared righteous in the eyes of God. So that's what Paul is describing. Saving faith, initial faith, in response to God's rescuing, searching grace that makes us right in God's eyes. James is describing a different aspect of faith. James is talking about the ongoing faith that the Christian, the believer, who's already experienced this, exercises in response to God's empowering, sustaining grace in our lives. And this leads not to justification, but to sanctification, which is the process by which we become more like Jesus, right? So you have two different things. You have Paul talking about faith in a way that leads to a legal verdict that you have right standing in God's eyes because of your faith in Jesus. That is, by the way, the message of the gospel. A lot of people think that the message of Christianity is be the best person you can and hope that you get to heaven and have your fingers crossed. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. That's moralism, and it will crush you. The message of the gospel is you couldn't get yourself to heaven, but Jesus Christ did a work on your behalf, in your place. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And if you place your faith and trust in him, which means if you receive his work on your behalf, you exercise that sort of faith, you can be declared righteous by God, right standing, as if you lived the life that Jesus Christ himself lived. That's what the heart of the gospel is. But then how do we respond? Over here, James talks about ongoing faith. That's a worshipful response. Right, let me give you this example. I didn't think of this in the first service. You guys get this for free. 9 a.m. service didn't get it. So maybe it's a bad example, though, because I'm thinking of it on the fly. So when, when, when two people get married and they sign the marriage license, as soon as that marriage license is signed, and I, I've officiated lots of weddings, so I've signed lots of marriage licenses, the second it's signed, you are as legally married as the person, as your parents, as legally married as your grandparents. You are, in that second, as legally married as anybody who's been married for 40, 50, 60 years. You're no, they are no more legally married than you are. But then what happens for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years? You learn how to be married, right? You learn what it looks like to forgive each other. Once all of a sudden you realize this person's not perfect, their breath stinks in the morning. They don't like the shows I like. They don't, they don't like the way I drive, right? You start figuring these things about each other, and then you learn to forgive each other and accept each other, and you're moving from just like this legal status of being married to actually functioning like a married couple with all of the rights, responsibilities, and privileges 
of being married. And this is sort of what we're talking about. Yes, when you place your faith in Christ, you're righteous, but it's our ongoing faith in Christ that helps us to live out that relationship. So James and Paul don't disagree with each other. In fact, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2, the very next verse. Look at what Paul says. After he says, you've been saved by grace, by faith alone, look what he says here in this verse. In verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand. Isn't that a cool thought? That before God even rescued you and saved you, he had good works for you to do in mind. He's prepared for you that we should walk in them. So here's one way to understand this tension. Christians, you're not saved by your good works, but we are saved for good works. Does that make sense? We're not saved by them. We can't work our way in, but we have been saved for them. And God may not need your good works, but your neighbor needs your good works. And your friends and your family need your good works. So we are saved. Here's what James is really saying. We are saved by faith alone, but not by, the, not by faith that remains alone. Okay? We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. If there's no change in your life, then this faith never really grabbed hold. Okay. So that's a faith that costs you nothing. Now let's talk about a faith that costs you something. Let's keep reading this text, verse 21. James, he shifts from giving us two hypothetical examples to two real-life examples from the history of the Jewish people. Let's read this together, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? We'll talk about that more. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was, also, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also the faith apart from works is dead. So James here gives us two examples to talk about a faith that costs something. Abraham and Rahab, real people from the history of the Israelites. And it's interesting, why did he choose Abraham and Rahab? I think he chose them because they couldn't be more different from each other. They're so different. Abraham is a man, of course. Rahab is a, Rahab is a woman. Abraham is an Israelite. Not just as he's an Israelite, he's the father of the Israelites. Rahab is a Gentile, a pagan. Abraham is a central character in the story of the people of Israel. Rahab, at best, is a peripheral character. Abraham is a man of God, and Rahab sold herself to survive. Now, why Abraham and Rahab? And I think why is because James is trying to tell us, wherever you find yourself, this is true for you. Wherever you are on that spectrum, and most of us are on neither extreme, we're kind of somewhere in the middle, but wherever you find yourself, Abraham, Rahab, this is true for you, that there is a faith that should cost you something. Because Abraham and Rahab, their faith cost them something. Let's talk about both of them just for a moment. The story that they mention in, in, in Genesis 22 here, Abraham God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your son whom you love, this son of promise, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham is like, this, doesn't, this seems so out of character for God. This seems out of alignment with the promises that he's spoken to me, but I know that I've heard God, and I'm going to obey him. And for three days, Abraham and Isaac go on a journey up a hill where Abraham intends to sacrifice Isaac. Now, he doesn't. 
God intervenes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But imagine what those three days were like. How many of you have learned in life it's the anticipation often that's the worst part? Abraham, for three days, is walking, thinking about what he's going to have to do. He suffered every step of that journey because faith costs you something. Rahab, a slightly different story. She's a prostitute living in a city called Jericho. Joshua, the leader of Israel at that time, he came after Moses. He sends two spies into Jericho because they want to attack Jericho because God's told them to take Jericho. And Rahab welcomes these two spies into her house and she hides them and she protects them. And she tells them how to get out of Jericho safely. Now, what, how did Rahab believe in God? She's a pagan living in Jericho. She's a Gentile. And one of the things I learned this week when I was studying this passage is that biblical historians say that a prostitute in a community like that back then, most of her clientele would not have been people who lived in the city. Uh, it would have been people who were traveling through, merchants and other people who are traveling through Jericho who would frequent her. And so what, what we've come to believe is that Rahab would have heard rumors about what God was doing for the Israelites how he delivered them out of Egyptian slavery, how he parted the Red Sea, how he sent the 10 plagues, how there was this, that, and the other. And somehow, in all of that storytelling, and in the most unusual, unexpected circumstances, Rahab has faith within her heart, and she begins to believe in that God. But she doesn't just believe in him. When she gets the chance to act, she acts, and she protects the people who serve that God. And was it costly? It could have cost her a lot. If the leaders in Jericho, if the military leaders learned that she welcomed Israelites into her home and she protected them and she took care of them and she made sure that they escaped, she would have died. It was a faith that cost Abraham something. It was a faith that cost Rahab something. And at this point, we have to pause and ask ourselves this question. What does my faith cost me? What has it cost me? How has my faith inconvenienced me? How has my faith intruded on areas of my life. For some people, faith only intrudes on them on Christmas and Easter and they go to a service. For some people, faith only intrudes on people on Sunday mornings. They come to church and they give their time and, and God bless you. I'm not making light of where people are at in their spiritual journey, but I'm saying if you're growing in your faith, at some point your faith will cost you something more than showing up at church. It will begin to cost you something in the way you work. You won't... Um, Maybe you won't take the shortcuts other people take because you have values and character that's different. Uh, it'll change the way that you relate to people who have wronged you. It will change the way you relate to people who, who think differently than you, who look differently than you, who vote differently than you. How has your faith intruded on your life? It will even intrude on your schedule in which you'll find yourself opening up your home and making time for other people because you love them and you care about them. You know, at Trinity, our mission statement is making disciples for the glory of our God and the good of our community. We exist to make disciples, which simply means we exist to share our faith with other people and help them grow and encourage them and challenge them in their growth. Well, how is the task or the mission of making disciples, how is it affecting your life? For some of you, it might mean giving up a quiet Saturday morning once a month to have coffee with somebody because you want to start discipling them. I, I don't know what it is for you, but I do know this. Faith that costs nothing is worth nothing. A faith that costs something actually has the ability to make a difference, not just in us, but in others. And that's what James is calling us to do here. Costly faith will always stretch us. It will grow us. James said it will bring our faith to maturity. Now, where does this faith come from? Where do we get it? A couple weeks ago, I was talking about um, 
some of the shows I watch on Food Network and uh, watching guys like Guy Fieri travel the country, diners, drive-ins, and dives, and go and, and eat. And when I realized that that's a legitimate job, <laughs> I wanted a word with my high school guidance counselor. <laughs> I wanted to be like, where, where were you 20 years ago when I was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life? This, this is interesting to me. I found out of another job recently. Well, I knew about it, but I was, I was thinking about this job. It's a job of being a personal shopper. Personal shopper. Have you heard of this? You get paid money to spend other people's money. <laughs> Sounds nice, right? Personal shoppers can make anywhere from $30,000 to $60,000 up to $100,000 a year shopping for other people. I thought, that's a nice job. I would do that. Paid to spend other people's money. So, like, you're going around and you're buying stuff, and not only are you not spending your own money, you're getting paid to spend someone else's money. It might look like it's costing you something, but what it's costing you has actually been given to you by someone else. And we think about where do we get the faith to serve God and to offer him something that costs us something. We have to remember, everything we have to offer God first came from God. We're like the personal shopper who's blessing other people, but we're blessing other people with the very gifts, talents, abilities, and opportunities that God has provided for us. There's nothing you and I can offer to God that he didn't first give us. This past week, Thursday and Friday, Rand Anderson and some men were out there putting shingles on the carport roof because a storm came through earlier this year and blew a bunch of shingles off. And they donated their Friday or their Thursday and their Friday to come and do that. And God bless them for doing it. But every single one of them would be willing to admit, the only reason I can even climb a ladder is because I have muscles and bones and strength in my leg. And you know not everybody can do that. I have a daughter with cerebral palsy. She can't climb a ladder. Not everybody can do that. You know, they, they can carry those heavy shingles on their shoulders up to that roof because they have strength. And yes, they've worked at it, and yes, they've developed it, but if you don't have it to begin with, it doesn't matter how much you work or develop at it. It's a gift from God. They have a mind for construction, for how to lay out shingles, for how to do things properly. And they served and they served and they did good works this week, but the very good works they did, they did because God gave them the ability to do so. They're basically a personal shopper spending someone else's money and then getting the blessing for it. That's what it looks like to give something, a faith that costs something. You know, Abraham brings Isaac up that mountain, but who did he get Isaac from? He was 100 years old, and his wife Sarah was 90 years old when God gave them Isaac, the God of promise. You don't have to be good at math or biology to know that's not normal. <laughs> Isaac was a gift from God, and now God's asking for Isaac back, and certainly it's hard to give the things that we have or we think we have. I understand that. Hard to give your time, your talent, your treasure. I get it. But if we can remind ourselves, everything I have comes from God. What God requires, listen, what God requires, he provides. Isn't that good? What God requires of us, he provides to us. Everything you need to do the good works God has created you for has already been given to you by God. Okay, so there's a faith that costs nothing. And can we just agree, if you're a believer here, can we just agree, God, help us not to have a faith that costs nothing. There's a faith that costs something. And then the last thing we see, and we're going to close, is this. There's a faith that costs Jesus everything. As Abraham and Isaac are making that journey up the hill, there's this interesting interaction between Abraham and Isaac. Now, Isaac is smart. He's probably a teenager at this point. So he's actually, uh, he thinks he's smarter than he actually is, right? Um, and he's walking up the hill, and he looks around, and he says, I see wood, I see fire, but what are we sacrificing, Dad? There's no animal. And Abraham says this powerful promise, prophecy, statement of faith to him. 
He says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. He doesn't know, but that's what he's believing. He gets to the top of that hill, and he binds Isaac, and he puts him on the altar. He's ready to sacrifice his son whom he loves. And God stops him and says, stop, Abraham. I never wanted you to sacrifice him. I wanted to know your heart. Do you trust me? Do you have a faith that will cost you something? And then Abraham and Isaac look over, and in the thicket is a ram caught, who then becomes the sacrifice, the substitute sacrifice in Isaac's place. And it's the lamb's blood that is shed. You know, what's interesting about Abraham's faith in this moment is that he didn't know if God would stop him, but here's what commentators say. Abraham believed that even if God allowed him, even if he allows me to sacrifice my son, Abraham believed the promise is not dead. The promise remains. The promise is true. Because here's what Abraham would have thought. Even if I sacrifice my son, I know that God can raise him from the dead. God didn't allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and Isaac didn't have to be raised from the dead. But thousands and thousands of years later, on what many people would believe to be the exact same mountain, Jesus walks up with a cross on his back. The true and better lamb, the one whose blood was shed on our behalf. And God allowed the son of promise to be sacrificed, but he raised him from the dead. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we look at the cross, here's what we are reminded of. What God required, he provided. He needed the sinless sacrifice because he is a holy God. And I know that's confusing for some people and we could talk about that. But this is what's shown to us in Scripture. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, the true and better Lamb, walks to the cross where he is sacrificed on our behalf. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And what God requires, he provided. And the faith that you have this morning, even if it's just a little bit, and the faith that I have, it cost Jesus everything. It cost him everything as he went to the cross for you and me. And when we see what it costs Jesus, you know what it does for us? It begins to melt our hearts, doesn't it? It begins to move our hearts and motivates us to do good works. So now we're not doing good works to prove anything or earn anything. We're doing good works because our hearts are so won and captured and captivated by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laying down his life for us, that he would do this work on our behalf. And it's out of his work that we do our works. We don't do our works to earn his work. His work is done. As he breathed his last, he said, it's finished. It's over. I did everything necessary to make you right before the Father. Receive my work. And once you receive his work, then out of that will flow good works that God has prepared for you beforehand. So when we see Jesus dying on a cross for our sins, it motivates our hearts and it gives us perspective that any work he asks us to do, we can do because of the work he did for us. Let's pray together.